0: Welcome to the Foreign Policy Provcast. I am Mark Melton, the Deputy Editor at Providence, and I am joined here today with Eric Patterson. Eric serves as the Executive Vice President of the Religious Freedom Institute. He is Scholar-at-Large and Past Dean of the Robertson School of Government at Regent University and a Research Fellow at Georgetown University's Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs. He's also a Contributing Editor for Providence and the author of Just American Wars, Ethical Dilemmas in U.S. Military History, which came out last year and which we are going to talk about today. So first, Eric, thank you so much for speaking with us today.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Mark.
0: So the... uh first thing I wanted to talk about is what exactly is the just-war tradition or just-war thinking, and specifically the use ad bellum, use in bello, and use post-bellum, because I figured the best way to start off a podcast is to start speaking in Latin.
1: Wonderful. Well, Latin is a part of this because some elements of just-war thinking are rooted in natural law. You go back to Cicero. They're also rooted in the Bible, such as in Romans 13. And then in the early church and through the church fathers like Augustine and up through Aquinas to this very day. And the just war tradition historically asked two questions. When is it moral to go to war or to employ force? And then second, once that decision is made, how can force be employed in a way that's ethical? And over time, we've added a third, what we call use post bellum, or how do we bring wars to a satisfactory end and establish an enduring peace. So, use ad bellum, going to war, use in bello, how war is fought, use post bellum, how war ends. And over time, we've developed criteria for those. Let me just mention the first three for use ad bellum, or the decision to go to war. That decision's made by a legitimate political authority acting on behalf of a just cause
0: with right intention and how is the just war tradition Christian?
1: This clearly is a Christian way of making prudential judgments. And first, when one one reads the Bible and you see the way that there are limitations on the kings, when you look at the literature in Proverbs that talks about stewardship, when you read Romans 13, you see throughout the Bible an emphasis on restraint and the use of force. But let me mention a couple very distinct things. First, How do I love my neighbor, especially if I'm in a position of authority? And one of the ways is by protecting them and punishing wrongdoing. A second biblical principle that you see throughout Proverbs, there's a lot of emphasis on counting the cost, and we want statesmen to do this. And that's a part of the just war tradition. It's not utilitarianism, it's stewardship to say, to do this is going to cost this amount. And that has to do with uh, with tax dollars. It has to do with military material. It has to do with the offs of national security. A third Christian element is the idea of vocation. We believe that all of society are the hands and feet, et cetera, uh, of the body of Christ. And so we need people who are called to be teachers as well as clergy, as well as those who will serve in law enforcement and the military, and that's a good thing. And then the last thing is Romans 13 uh, as well as the writing of especially the Church Fathers like a- Augustine, emphasizes the, the importance of political order and leadership, moral leadership, moral decision-making. And, and that's clearly a
0: Christian thing. And uh, in this latest book, you are talking about American wars and how the just war tradition applies to them. And uh, why did you start researching this book and what surprised you when you were researching and writing this book?
1: Yeah, the American experience is quite unique. From our founding, we've been a democracy. We've debated Every war in terms of its moral merits, there's been all the way back to the American War for Independence up until the the current wars in the greater Middle East, there's been massive debate in society about the ethics of making the decision to go to war and how war is fought. And it was reflecting in specific on whether or not going to war in 1775 and 1776, whether or not that
0: was just that led me to this project. And in your book, you talk about how the United States is uniquely uh, ethical, and how it, how and why it fights its wars. So, why is the United States unique, in your opinion? And like, how do other countries compare?
1: Yeah, and I think there's at least two weeks that the U.S. two ways that the U.S. is unique. One is as a as a republic. There's been a tremendous amount of of counterforce to any one leader who would want to be a war maker. And that's just true of democracies, that there's checks and balances on any one leader being a sort of war maker in the way that maybe Louis XIV or Napoleon Bonaparte or Julius Caesar might have been in the past. But second is the starting at the time of the US Civil War, the US was the first modern country to implement what we have today, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and the kinds of things that become a part of the law of armed conflict. And this is a pretty interesting story. A political philosopher who had immigrated to the US from Germany in the 1850s, a guy named Francis Lieber, wrote to uh, the senior military officer in the US military, General Halleck, and he proposed that we needed a an update of our articles of war, which which were 50 years old at that time, and which were very outdated and very thin. And what happened through a series of letters and things was is that he did write for the U.S. what became General Order Number 100 for Abraham Lincoln, which imposed a a new set of restrictions on soldiers' behavior, both towards one another and towards civilians. And that code, we call it the Lieber Code was quickly transmitted to other countries. Within five years after the US Civil War, a half dozen European countries, important ones like Prussia and others, uh, implemented our model. And over the next half century, that became both the way that we trained and disciplined our own army, but also a dozen or more other countries. Uh, So the US was really at the forefront of establishing
0: modern rules for the conduct of war. And in your book, you talk about how because we're a democracy, that plays into why we fight our wars in a different way. And do you want to explain, like, how does the democratic aspect play into this?
1: Yes. uh, American democracy is quite different than the way many other governments have handled war. It's been more moral. And what I mean by that specifically is we've had vociferous debate about the morality of going to war all the way back to the American Revolution. For instance, throughout the 1800s, there was a debate, should we go to Cuba and release these people from the bondage of the Spanish Empire? There were concentration camps in the second half of the 1800s. And the debate was, yes, we should to help people versus no, we shouldn't, because that would be an imperialistic effort. So the debates continually have revolved around moral questions. And certainly, if you think about the wars, of the past decade, many of the debates have been, what do we need to do to help the entire world as well as ourselves when it comes to international security? Shouldn't we be helping uh, people in Central Asia and the greater Middle East versus others saying, well, uh, going to war in those places causes a set of unintended consequences that isn't in the best interests of those people? You know, Either side of these debates, they're moral. We usually don't have a strictly
0: Machiavellian type of discussion about war in the U.S. It's hard to explain to mothers and fathers why their children have to go to war for purely materialistic reasons. And so I think we also see that with the debates over Yemen right now. And with it's very a very vibrant debate on Capitol Hill going back and forth. And yeah, there's a moral you know, issue with that.
1: Yeah, an authoritarian type of regime just tells you we're going to war, shut up, get in line, go. Uh, The United States has never been that way. There's not a single war, even the U.S. Civil War, where there wasn't considerable debate about whether or not to go to war in the first place. And in fact, those types of debates kept us out of World War II for more than two years. The war started in September '39. We did not get involved until Pearl Harbor in December of
0: 1941. So a lot of people today, like you were mentioning earlier, are debating whether or not the United States was just in fighting the American Revolution. And I first heard this, you know, living in the United Kingdom. In fact, I remember sitting in a pub speaking with an Englishman who was very um, adamant about debating me over taxes and how taxes increased after the revolution, and I... Uh, was not particularly enthused with this conversation. But you... So this is part of the reason why you wrote the book. So would you like to explain why you conclude that the United States was just in fighting the American Revolution?
1: Yes. The... American Revolution really wasn't a revolution, first and foremost. It wasn't like the French Revolution or the Chinese Revolution or the Russian Revolution that burned down an entire structure, a set of ideas and institutions, and implemented a visionary, revolutionary regime in the future. The American War for Independence was self defensive, and and the chronology matters. Everybody knows that there was a set of restrictions increasing on the colonies beginning in, really in the late 1750s, and that after 1765, those got harsher and harsher. What people sometimes forget is, is that the first shots of that war took place in April of 1775 at Lexington and Concord. We call them the shots heard around the world. And in July of 1775, the Continental Congress met And they sent a document to London called the Declaration of Rights and Grievances of the United Colonies. Now, this is 12 months to the week before the Declaration of Independence. And it's two months after Redcoats had killed American colonial citizens uh, at Lexington and Concord. So in July of 1775, the Continental Congress actually sent two documents to London. But one of them makes the argument, here are our lists of grievances. You've quartered troops in our homes. You've taken our land. You've stopped jury trials. You've put people before admiralty courts. We're afraid that you're going to establish bishoprics throughout the United States and take away religious freedom. You'll send people from Canada to court there, on and on and on. And now you've been killing our citizens. We do not want to go to war. We are not looking for independence. All we're asking for is that we have the same rights and privileges under the rule of law that other Englishmen have but we will defend ourselves. And that statement was the statement of the Continental Congress from July of 1775 until a full year passes with the Declaration of Independence in 1776. So this war meets just war criteria. It's self-defensive. The legitimate authority was the Continental Congress, which was made up of representatives from the state legislatures. The intention was self-defensive to protect citizenry and their private property here in the United States, or what becomes the U.S., and the cause was just. Augustine said that a just cause is to right a wrong, prevent future wrongdoing, or to punish wrongdoers, and clearly this was a chance to to act self-defensively to stop further wrongs and depredations. And for anyone who disagrees, I just ask them, how would they feel if a bunch of German-speaking mercenaries showed up on their doorstep and said, hey, we're moving into your house, we'll pay you for it. Uh, You have some teenage daughters? Oh, even better. The the, the reality of losing your property, of your family not being safe, that's the reality that many colonists in Virginia and in Massachusetts in particular were facing in 1775.
0: And within the Just War tradition, you have this debate or this discussion over legitimate authority, as you've mentioned earlier. And within the American Revolution, I've seen many people describe it as a British civil war, where you have these different debates going on, not just in uh, now the United States, but America, the colonies, but also in Scotland and England and other places about a lot of these political, you know, theoretical issues of what constitutes a legitimate authority. And so... And in your book, you talk about how parliament viewed itself as the ultimate sovereign. It could take these charters that the colonies had and basically void them and impose taxes and do all sorts of other things. The Continental Congress, in contrast, viewed things very differently. And in America, we are a republic, so we believe that the people are sovereign, not necessarily the government per se. But we give our sovereignty to the government through this whole social contract and all this other – reasoning. And even today, you see part of the parliament within the Brexit debate viewing itself as the ultimate sovereign. So these ideas kind of still continue. And so we also see other issues today over what constitutes a legitimate authority. For instance, uh, if you are a elected government somehow, and you are committing gross human violation human rights violations and you're violating what's called the responsibility to protect or the r2p then are you still a legitimate authority or if there's an ungoverned space who is the legitimate authority or if the space cannot be governed who is the legitimate authority over that area and so i see some of these issues playing out and so my question to you is how does the just war tradition settle or discuss who is the legitimate authority
1: So back to the revolution and then to these contemporary issues, when it came to the American War for Independence, it's noteworthy that the colonies had charters, and those charters went back 150 years in some cases, and those charters were being revoked, or they had been systematically revoked or infringed on in the previous quarter century. And so the colonists were making the argument, and it's one that comes from the Reformation, that there's an intermediate authority that should be protecting local people from a higher level of despotism. In the case today, you asked about places that are ungoverned or et cetera, where where we see a breakdown of authority. And of course, the fundamental breakdown in social life is when there's a breakdown of authority, uh, when there's no government to protect people, when there's no rule of law, and, and there's, a, there's a deleterious effect on other institutions. Usually when the government breaks down, there's a breakdown of religious institutions because they're not protected. There's often a breakdown of the family, et cetera, and we see this in places like Afghanistan and Somalia. So what to do? Well, in places that are ungoverned, usually something kind of indigenously happens on the ground, warlords, militias, or something like that. And the US should be slow slow to try to impose something else. The, the world community should be slow to try to impose uh, a non-relevant form of government there. But governments need to think about the protection of their own people and regional security. A good example of this is Kosovo in 1999. So what the US-led NATO coalition did was they said, five years before Kosovo, we saw the same Serbian leader, Slobodan Milosevic practicing ethnic cleansing of Muslims and others. We are not going to let this happen again. And so in 1999, the U.S. led an aerial campaign and then some boots on the ground to stop that and protect people in Kosovo. We didn't take out the leader. We didn't bomb all the cities down in, in Serbia and elsewhere down to the ground, although we bombed some bridges and things like that. But so it was a limited war, but its purpose was to protect this area. And it was a vital area because we didn't want to see bloodshed spread throughout the Balkans and then pull in other actors. What you wouldn't want to see is Catholic countries coming to the aid of Croatia, the Russians coming to the aid of Serbia, NATO and others coming to the aid of and, and this kind of conflagration exploding. So it was limited, it was targeted. And the reason, again, come back to the reason, was to enforce political order, which is in everybody's best interest.
0: So moving beyond legitimate authority and the American Revolution, but staying within the idea of use ad bellum, and you talk about the Vietnam War, and you make the case that the Vietnam War, America was just to go into it. Would you like to explain why you come to that conclusion?
1: Let me first note that debates about the Vietnam War are often highly circumscribed, people sometimes act as if there was just, you know, some one moment of possible decision. And we need to realize that the U.S. was involved in, in, in that part of the world starting in the early 1950s and with the Korean War on its mind and the fall of China to the communists in 1949, and that we stayed involved there for the next 20 years until leaving in 1973. So. There's not some magical moment, but but many thoughtful Christians like Reinhold Niebuhr supported containing the Soviets and containing communism in the Vietnam War, and over time felt like it had become too costly and that there were reasons to pull back their support. And so uh, it's worth realizing it's, it's one thing to be in favor of the, the reasons for the war in 1963 and think that by 1973, we're in a different position. So... I think that we need to be intellectually honest about that. The argument I make in the book, however, is is that when we look at the presidential war aims, so why did the four presidents who were presidents who presided over some involvement there, Eisenhower, Kennedy, LBJ, Nixon, what did they say? And, And honestly, what did they believe was the reason to be fighting in that part of the world and supporting the government of South Vietnam? And the reasons that they gave were to support... A ally, second, to contain communism, and third, to demonstrate cr- the credibility of the Western Alliance to the entire world. And there were many leaders across Southeast Asia and places like Indonesia and the Philippines and elsewhere that felt that it was very important for the US to demonstrate that resolve that we would have their backs against communist insurgents. And I think that those three elements all meet the
0: just war criteria of right intention and just cause. And in the book, you also talk of the difference between resolve and then personal reputation of the president, where I was actually kind of like some of the stories may be very common knowledge to everyone else. But some of the stuff like the presidents were doing and saying seemed a bit a bit bizarre, some of their behavior, I should say. I won't describe everything they did on the podcast, but could you explain like the difference between the resolve of the United States versus the reputation of the president?
1: Yeah. In the chapter on Vietnam, I make the case that those things that we just talked about are meet just war criteria, help an ally, contain communism, etc. But... I also point out two things that don't meet just our criteria that over time extended the war or helped to explain why certain presidents felt that it was important. So one is ego or reputation, and the second one has to do with national honor. Now in the first one, JFK, LBJ, and Nixon, they're well known for having ego issues. And the book talks about, for instance, JFK you know telling his advisors that he was going to show Khrushchev who was the toughest SOB in the room. So ego played a role in this, especially for the Democrats, because they felt that they were the party that had lost China in 1949. They felt like they'd been kind of tarred and feathered as weaker than the Republicans. They had to be tough. That's not a great reason to extend a war. Second is the idea, which is a more difficult one, of national honor. And particularly Nixon kept making the argument that we need to have peace with honor. Uh, He was echoing Eisenhower— who used to talk about peace with justice. And the idea is is that we're going to keep fighting this war because we've already sacrificed so much. We don't want that sacrifice to be in vain, so we're going to keep fighting the war. And when you think through that logic, that's actually not a great logic because there's other ways to honor the fallen, a monument, take care of the widows, take care of the orphans. There's other ways to honor sacrifice without making that a carte blanche to continue war. So I'm quite skeptical that I don't think that meets the just war criteria about right intention and just cause.
0: And you also wrote about that in a Providence article, which I believe was based on that chapter of the book. And so for those of you who haven't gone on Providence and subscribed, be sure to do so and you can read the article there. And also just buy the book too, so you can get more of this information. So switching to uh, use in bellow, am I pronouncing that correctly? (laughs) Uh, So the use in bellow which is how you fight wars. And in this book, I believe it's the shortest section of the book, correct? Because you've written about this elsewhere. But could you explain on nuclear weapons, like why do you think that they can be used justly? Because there are many people who would say that they are indiscriminate. They cause horrific lasting harm. So how can they be used in a just war situation? Let's
1: start with conventional weapons, and we'll go to nuclear weapons in a moment. So when you look at the American experience, I think that today's American citizens should feel very proud that going all the way back to the American War for Independence, Washington was not a terrorist. He tried to stand up a professional army. He fought by the laws of armed conflict that were conventional in his day. It just isn't the case to say that George Washington or others were the same as a Che Guevara or Osama bin Laden. We, we have something to be very proud of, of, of trying to put force within the rule of law. And that's true in the War of 1812. It's true in the U.S. Civil War. It's true in the Mexican-American War, which I write about in the book, and on and on. All the way to today, just a year ago, when the United States released its, its estimates of casualties from bombing ISIS fighters, we were the only country out of two dozen to do so. The other 23 countries that were bombing ISIS or whatever that number is, 20 countries who had bombed ISIS at some point, no one else would admit that there had been any collateral damage. The US really does care about a level a level of honesty and integrity uh, and, and protecting human life when it comes to the battlefield. That is about conventional weapons. The argument I make in the book is, first, how should we think about nuclear weapons? And the argument that I make is is that nuclear weapons are not just an in-bellow issue. In other words, they're not just about how you fight. They're also a decision about the primary decision to go to war in the first place and who makes that decision and how that decision is made. So an argument that I make in the book is that – we need to, first of all, think about who makes that decision, what are the protocols for the decision, what are the protocols, there for, for nuclear research or research into other weapons of mass destruction. And by the way, the same framework also applies to thinking about artificial intelligence and logarithmic forms of warfare. In other words, computer programs that are fighting 24-7 against other countries or defending us against other countries. We need to make the decisions on the authority piece and the just cause piece first before we start thinking about how we implement the weapon. So the argument I make in the book is taken largely from Paul Ramsey. And he made the argument that nuclear weapons are, are, are massive in their destructive power, but they do not necessarily have to be targeted just at cities. They could be a counterforce option, meaning military against a military target that they don't have to be used against cities, and that we should, Paul Ramsey, this great theologian, says, we should make it a part of our doctrine, we would never, ever strike another country's cities to go after their civilians. And I think that that's a very, very good limitation. Nonetheless, we need nuclear deterrence from people who don't hold our views, and that's why it's important to have submarine-based missiles. That's why it's important to have bombers. That's why it's important to have missiles is to deter people like China or North Korea who do not subscribe to the value of human life like we do.
0: And I would say for those listeners on the podcast that we have a couple other episodes, for instance, with Rebecca Heinrichs, who has spoken about this with us. And that was actually one of my first podcasts was talking to her about nuclear weapons and just war tradition. And uh, right now, yesterday, I just edited an article by Mark Levecki that by the time that this gets posted, I'm sure that article will be on the website that talks about nuclear weapons. And so there's plenty of material on the website for those who want to continue reading about this. In addition, as I said before, you can also buy this book and read about it there too. So we've talked about use ad bellum, use in bellow, and now use post bellum. So uh, could you, you kind of mentioned earlier, like some of the different aspects of that, but you mentioned there are what, three different criterion and the, and you are one of the main people kind of talking about and promoting this. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. Uh, 15 years ago, I was a young scholar who went to a conference at the, at the Naval, at, uh, I'm sorry, at Annapolis. And I asked the head guy, who's a well known just war thinker, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit new to this stuff. I understand you said Bellum, going to war, and use and Bellum, how you fight war. W- where's the ending war? Uh, I, what would you even call that? Would you call it use post Bellum? And he looked at me and he said, I've never thought of it before. And and that really stuck with me. And and part of the reason the just war tradition historically hasn't dealt with that is it's dealt with kind of the handoff back to diplomacy and things. And so just war thinkers always said, well, the end of peace is war. And then left, uh, the end of war is peace, sorry, the end of war is peace. There's the handoff, right? Well, I don't think that's enough. And uh, this happened at about the same time I went to the State Department to work in the Political Military Affairs Bureau as a Foster Fellow. And I would see countries that were very, very insecure. And so I came up with a framework that for use postbellum. And that basic idea is order, then justice, then conciliation. So you have to establish political order. And, and, and in many countries, it's very difficult. Congo, Afghanistan, other places. It's very precious. Order is precious. In some cases, I'd say about 10% of the time, You can move beyond order to justice, and justice means getting one's just desserts. And so it has to do with both who committed the wrong and who are the victims. And that's not easy, actually. And so you have to be very judicious about that not opening a can of worms that you can't deal with, that overwhelms the order. And then over time, in in unique cases, there could be some form of conciliation, which means coming terms coming to terms with the past and moving on to a, a shared future with former antagonists. And a lot of times that conciliation is very, very difficult unless there's been a process of time
0: to heal some wounds. So order, justice, conciliation. So in your section of the book where you talk about use bellum you write about the First World War and Woodrow Wilson's plan for global world order after nineteen nineteen. And you write about it fairly negatively. And so would you like to explain why you are negative on that and like what did he do wrong and what could he have done better?
1: The chapter on World War One focuses on the three great leaders at the end of World War One and their different positions on what to do with Germany and a post-war settlement. And clearly the French position was one of vengeance. We want to grind the Germans. And the British position was a little bit more nuanced. They, they wanted some vengeance as well, but they recognized, David Lloyd George, the prime minister, recognized that Germany would have to be part of a post-war order. They'd be a trading partner and that they would be a bulwark against this new Soviet threat. And so he emphasized a, a moderate approach that was what I would call order with some justice. Woodrow Wilson was truly a revolutionary. And the argument that I make is is that he didn't want to just establish a, a, status, a status quo antebellum. He didn't want to establish a, a level of order and justice. He wanted to jump outside of history and revolutionize world politics. And the just war tradition is pretty skeptical about any form of true revolution, meaning burning down the past, starting from scratch. It's telling that Woodrow Wilson praised the Russian Revolution in a speech before Congress. And what he wanted to do was to get rid of all colonial empires. And he was, he was, in his private correspondence and things, he was very skeptical about the British Empire and the French Empire. These were his close allies. He believed he had a messianic sense of purpose that he was God's man in the moment, that he could go over the heads of the European leaders and effect change. And so the arguments he was making about self-determination and nationalism in 1917, 1918, 1919, were way beyond just uh, reestablishing order in Europe. And in a sense, his high and mighty attitude was a turnoff to the other people that he worked with, both the Republican-led Senate in the United States who would not uh, ratify the League of Nations treaty, but also the Europeans that he worked with. And that's my criticism. My criticism is trying to do too much, uh, taking that revolutionary approach rather than an incremental
0: order-based approach. And also in the book, you talk about how some of his ideas at that time are now common. Understanding, or it's much more widespread. For instance, the idea of ethnic groups slash nations should have self-determination, uh, the idea of more democracy, greater government transparency. And in hindsight, I think it's pretty obvious, or maybe not obvious, but we can see how those ideas can become more commonly accepted today. So, but at the time, did those goals seem as utopian or as dangerous as some of the other goals that failed? And did he have to promote several policies to see which would eventually work and which would fail, or to expand what people thought was possible in 1919?
1: Wilson was making claims at the time that sound very normal to us today. And yet those claims have been disappointing to us on multiple times so the claims about self-determination uh, with a revolutionary tinge didn't really work all that well in the 1920s and at the end of the Second World War the US was was anti-colonialism again and and with good reason but nonetheless we pressured our allies and things and but we didn't we weren't all that constructive of a force in some cases about the transitions to democracy, and and the emphasis on providing order as countries are moving towards constitutionally mandated types of institutions. And then again, in the past 15 years, we've been very disappointed with two rounds of Arab Spring, the first one in 2005, and then the second one in 2011. And for some reason, these values that we think are very, very important, we haven't been all that constructive in helping midwife them in the ways that take root. And maybe the reason for that, going back to Woodrow Wilson, is there's not an emphasis on the rule of law and the common good. The rule has been on on, on self-determination and nationalism. So a group gets to decide whatever it wants to do, rather than emphasizing concrete, actionable, slow, steady, thoughtful steps within the rule of law towards an ordered liberty. And that's a lesson I think we learned from Woodrow Wilson. What you don't want to do is burn down the past. You want to, because political order so often really is the foundation of just-worth thinking, but it is of, of, of practical statesmanship. How do we reinforce good institutions that exist? Maybe they're indigenous and they don't look exactly like ours, and then take concrete steps to help with a sense of common purpose and common good a country to become more representative more literate more acting on the best interests of most of its citizens rather than kind of burning up the entire past
0: so post 9 11 and with the war on terror how does the just war tradition apply as we move forward
1: on the one hand it applies in the way that we behave ourselves And second, there's something to be said for the changing battle space. So first, I think Americans should be very, very proud that the vast majority of the time, our leaders and our troops act within the rule of law. Uh, For instance, President Trump bombed the Syrians in a very targeted location after they used chemical weapons on their own people. I think across the line, people should be very proud of that. It was discriminating, it was targeted, it was immediate. He enacted a red line imposed by President Obama that Obama never did. President Bush responded vigorously to al-Qaeda and terrorism. President Clinton responded vigorously in the Kosovo campaign in 1999. Uh, And in each of these cases, we're the unique country who not only prosecutes a war with a lot of limits, but when one of our own troops does something wrong there's a high level of potential that they're going to be called before a military tribunal or a military court and held accountable. Most countries don't do that. Now, that doesn't mean we haven't made mistakes, but one of the ways that we know we've made mistakes is because it's just worth thinking that is critical of the behavior of our troops, and we hold them accountable to that. So when it comes to the behavior of our troops and our leaders, I think that's something there's an area that we should be very proud of. The last 15 years, what we've seen is powerful weapons of war in the hands of non-state actors, groups like Al-Qaeda, like ISIS, a variety of Islamist-based terrorist groups, but also powerful criminal cartels like MS-13 and others. And so the first challenge of the new millennium is the democratization of firepower. And the US must be vigilant in, in protecting itself and waging battle against any of these types of groups. Of course, the second great challenge of, of, the, of the next century is going to be the proliferation of uh, automatic warfare and threats that come in kind of the electric battle space, everything from EMPs to automat- uh, uh, AI, artificial intelligence. And the most important thing that the US would do is not to fall asleep at the switch on this, but to advance thought leadership on the morality as well as the practical use of all of these systems. What we don't want to do is just leave this in the hands of engineers. The just war tradition is, is calling upon us to say, okay, who has the authority? What are the limitations on these technologies? And, and we can do that. We did it with nuclear weapons. We've done it with other things. Uh, the US should be a leader in these areas rather than just
0: defaulting to say, hey, we live in a world, whatever happens, happens. Well, Eric, thank you so much for speaking with us on the Foreign Policy ProfCast. And for the listeners, be sure to go and get his book, Just American Wars, Ethical Dilemmas in U.S. Military History, which is published by – how do you pronounce this? Routledge. Routledge. Okay, that is not how I was going to pronounce it, so I'm glad I let you do that. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com. Follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.